Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. Residents of Bloomington's Waterman neighborhood are raising concerns about contaminants in stormwater runoff from J.B. Salvage. In June of 2018, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management tested stormwater runoff from the locally owned automotive scrap metal business. IDEM's test revealed that, that levels of the contaminants copper, aluminum, iron, and lead were all above EPA benchmarks. Sarah Kalane was one of several Waterman neighborhood residents who expressed their concerns about contaminated soil and water to the Bloomington City Council last week. And, and I think I can speak for at least some of the neighbors when I say what we are looking to get out of this is to know what's in our soil and to have a good neighbor who respects the land that we use to grow our food and raise our children, and we would like the city's help in doing that. City of Bloomington Utilities Director Vic Kelson said CBU has twice done their own testing on runoff from the J.B. Salvage site. The first test showed elevated levels of copper, lead, and aluminum, but not high enough for CBU to issue a fine. Kelson said in a second round of tests conducted in January 2019, all contaminants were lower than in the previous testing. Copper in particular had fallen below the standard level, he said. Kelson added that no heavy metals or PCBs were found in CBU's samples. According to Kelson, J.B. Salvage is not in violation of any water quality laity standard because the state of Indiana has none except for copper. He explained the realities of EPA benchmarks, which IDEM uses. Those benchmarks are there to say you should be looking at your best management practices, but they are not regulatory limits and they're not enforceable in any way. Kelson also said regulating J.B. Salvage's chemical emission is beyond CBU's purview. It's important to, to know that regulating the concentrations of chemical constituents in stormwater is not in CBU's purview. Uh, that is, uh, that is uh, the duty of the state. Uh, and IDEM has been in contact with J.B. Salvage uh, and they have met with them to talk about improving their best management practices. Uh, the fact that the concentrations were lower in January's storm event than they were in November's may indicate that those best, ma best practices are paying off. Uh, it could also be more rain <laughs> and, and more dilution. But uh, IDEM, uh, we are in regular communication with IDEM regarding the site. 
uh, and IDEM is in regular communication with J.B. Salvage about the site. Kelson said IDEM has asked J.B. Salvage to change their permitting status, which Kelson says should mean the company will be monitored by IDEM more regularly. Kelson said this should result in J.B. Salvage using best management practices to control contaminants escaping their property. A team of conservation experts say a proposed southern border wall would disrupt habitats for 62 critically endangered species. The team published a paper last July in Bioscience that considers the likely effects of border wall construction. They found that a wall between the U.S. and Mexico would bisect a diverse geographic range, home of over 1,000 native animals and plants. Their findings also state that a wall would increase soil erosion, alter natural water flows, and change wildlife patterns. They also say a wall would increase the risks to people and animals by blocking their escape from flash floods and wildfires. A number of conservation areas and wildlife refuges straddle the border, putting them at risk for habitat fragmentation. In Mission, Texas, the National Butterfly Center, home to over 200 butterfly species, has been notified that the wall will divide the 100-acre sanctuary, placing it almost 70% of it on the Mexican side. On February 15th, a federal judge dismissed a racketeering lawsuit filed by Energy Transfer Partners, the corporation behind the controversial Dakota Access Pipeline. The racketeering lawsuit against Crystal Two Bulls, Greenpeace, and others was dismissed swiftly just three days after the final defendant's motion to dismiss. Lawyers for Two Bulls and Oglala Lakota, a Northern Cheyenne organizer, argued that the allegations against her consisted entirely of constitutionally protected activity and was not racketeering. Energy transfers sought to hold her liable for millions of dollars of supposed damages from the protests against the pipeline. There is a long history for the proposed pebble mine near Bristol Bay in Alaska. The pebble mine project is widely opposed by Alaskan citizens and politicians. The project has also been rejected several times. Now the Army Corps of Engineers is reviving the project and giving it an accelerated permit process despite requests from the Bristol Bay community for more time. The proposed copper and gold mine would be open pit with the waste stored in large impoundments. One of the environmental concerns is that any leakage could easily enter Bristol Bay, which has the largest wild salmon fishery in the world. Every year, Bristol Bay wild salmon fishery generates between 30 million and 60 million fish, and every year it generates revenue of $1.5 billion and jobs for 14,000 people. As the mine waste is toxic, it could destroy the salmon fishery. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Todd Wicks. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market in Delhi on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, 
and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. And now it's time for Get Out and Hike, exploring the wonderful wild areas of southern Indiana and beyond. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. My name is Tom Trent. I am a hiker and a trail runner and have been walking and hiking and running the trails of southern Indiana for the last 20 years or so. The Knobstone Trail begins a few miles north of Salem, Indiana in Washington County at Delaney Lake. It's all very well marked once you get to the park. And there's there's actually, uh, the Knobstone starts with two separate routes and eventually converges just into one route as it makes its way down toward Louisville. It's an amazing trail. Some incredible elevations and views. The sections that get you into the Clark County State Forest as you're getting further south are some of the most beautiful uh, sections of trail I've seen in southern Indiana. You get up there, there's one point where you can actually see the Louisville skyline from Clark County. It's very well marked, and every time it crosses a road or a highway, you'll see a bright KT marking for the Knobstone Trail. There are several places to pick it up. There are two or three trailheads in Washington County and a few then as you're moving down into into Clark County. It's it's a great adventure and you can take in pieces of it. You know, you, if you look it up online and you can uh, identify a trailhead and, and do a nice there and back if you park at a trailhead or if you're a little more ambitious and you want to throw a tent and some supplies together and and walk for a day or two. There are plenty of camping spots along the way. There's some really big elevation changes, especially when you get down closer in, in the Clark County area of it. So be prepared for that. And uh, yeah, get out and walk some trails. Get out and hike. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. You're very welcome. For today's feature, Eco Report producer Jan Walker interviews Alfio Satia, weatherization program manager for South Central Community Action Program. This is Jan Walker, and I'm interviewing Alfio Saita. Uh, thank you for being here today. You're welcome, Jan. Thanks for mm-hmm. having me. What is weatherization? Weatherization on a federal level encompasses efforts on the part of the federal government to reduce energy consumption in low-income households. It's funded through Department of Energy grants and uh, corresponding grants at the state level. I'm reading in the brochure here, as defined by the Department of Energy's Weatherization Assistant Program, are there weatherization programs all across the country? Weatherization, as defined by DOE, is something that takes place in all 50 states and extends into uh, U.S. territories and possessions. It often looks a little different. Obviously, you wouldn't want to deploy the same strategies in Guam, for instance, or Puerto Rico that you would Mm -hmm. deploy in a context like Monroe County or even some of the lake counties up north in Indiana, just because the climate is substantially Mm -hmm. different. But the idea is the same, that we're we're trying to save energy while improving the health and safety of the occupants of the home. What counties do you serve? 
Um, South Central Community Action Program serves clients in Monroe, Morgan, Brown, and Owen counties at this time. What does the weatherization program do for individuals? Uh, In terms of the weatherization process itself, there is an initial walkthrough in the home, and um, once the the home uh, is deemed eligible to receive services, a qualified energy auditor would visit the home and perform an energy audit, which is a process that takes anywhere from two to four hours on-site, evaluating all the systems of the home, testing the furnace and uh, other components. That information is then taken back to our shop and we produce a work order that's sent out to uh, reputable and and vetted contractors that we work with who are then in a position to execute that work. Uh, we We take the work in essentially three stages. The first component is the health and safety component. Um, so if there's any particular items of the home that are that need attention, we would take care of those right away to ensure the health and safety not only of the occupants but also of the crews working in the home. And then the next step would be to either repair or replace the mechanical systems as necessary. Indiana is considered a heating state, so we don't do anything with cooling. Um, but we are able to save folks quite a bit of energy consumption in the summer months by virtue of the insulation work that we're able to do. They're able to enjoy that in the summer with lower cooling bills as well as lower heating bills in the winter. Once the mechanical work is completed and we looked at the furnace and the water heating equipment, whether it's a water heater or a boiler or a tankless water heater, we're able to then move in what we call the shell phase of of the work, which is where we actually are installing insulation and um, making the home as efficient as possible. All of this work is driven by a piece of technology that um, really helps us diagnose the problems. And it's, it's, uh, folks might be familiar with this. It's called a blower door. Um, the blower door produces uh, a negative pressure or a positive pressure, depending on how the, the auditor in that case wants to use the tool to measure air leakage to the outside. And so based on that number, we're able to calculate what the heat loss of the home is in our case and then be able to make sure that the measures that we're deploying are going to be connected to energy savings in the future for that for that homeowner and those occupants. How does weatherization fit into uh, environmental policy and um, how does it help our environment? Sure. Um, in, an, in looking at a typical home uh, situation, whether it's a site-built house or a mobile home, we regularly are seeing energy savings of uh, 30, 40 percent. It's, um, it's not out of the norm to see those numbers uh, on an ongoing basis, and these are things that are tracked by the program. Um, so environmentally, there is a significant reduction in uh, the energy footprint that mm-hmm. we're seeing on the client consumption side, we track energy savings. Once we complete a project, we're able to track energy savings. And I'll give you a small example of something really practical that really speaks to some of the technology that's come out of uh, doing this work. Uh, and, and that in many ways, manufacturers in the private sector is kind of struggling to catch up with what it is that we would like to do in terms of implementing technology. A lot of folks are familiar with electric water heater technology. It's something that we've, we've known for decades. Uh, electric water heater that's available in the marketplace now, a standard electric water heater, 30, 40 gallon water heater, will call for energy consumption of about four to $550, $600 a year in, in uh, kilowatt hours. We're beginning to put into place devices that are 
uh, essentially an electric water heater paired with a heat pump. And it's a small piece of equipment that you install in place of your standard electric water heater. And in in place of that $600, $500 yearly bill, if the water heater is run on the hybrid mode, which is the heat pump mode, that unit will consume $115 a year. Just in, in terms of energy savings to the client, that's a significant reduction of their electrical bill. It impacts the environment on other fronts because as we reduce the footprint of individual households, mm-hmm. uh, local utility companies and REMCs are able to further extend their networks and serve many more clients and bring more people into their service lines and they're able to more effectively serve the population that that they're trying to cover. So aside from all the energy savings, uh, weatherization impacts the environment simply by improving the indoor air quality and health and safety situations of the occupants of the homes Uh, One of the more important aspects of improving that health and safety, particularly in a state like Indiana with uh, heavy radon uh, context, is that uh, we regularly air seal crawl spaces and install vapor barriers, which, while not fully mitigating the radon situation, are potentially significant in reducing the impact of radon in the home. The uh, technology that was that was put into place in the 1950s and 60s that resulted in construction of what effectively could be considered a kind of average type site-built house mm-hmm. and or mobile home did not really have the potential impact of radon in mind. And so there are certain factors that really play into how that inert gas is playing out inside our homes. And if we can do something about helping folks breathe better air, then that's a great benefit that doesn't necessarily have to do with energy savings, but mm-hmm. it goes towards greatly improving the, the health and safety of the occupants of the home. Oh, yeah, a healthy community. Right. Absolutely. <clears throat> I would like to tie in the work that we do to some of the conversations that are taking place in today's political context and connect to some of the points of discussion that are being crafted around this loosely articulated idea of the New Green Deal. I think weatherization and the insights that can be offered by the program, not only our program here locally, but in general on the national level. The services that we provide are really difficult to find in the private market. This is really the state working in partnership with local agencies to create an industry. This, This did not exist. Uh, as an industry 30 years ago. Certainly there have always been folks who are able to blow insulation into an attic and insulate your home, but uh, weatherization as as an approach to ensuring a healthier environment for humans Mm -hmm. is something that has really grown out of this program. And during the discussion you might see today on what's called the healthy homes movement Mm -hmm. that really emphasizes good indoor air quality. A lot of those components that are developing into that movement are were born out of this experiment in, in, in its infancy. And it's kind of as the, the, the program has become more sophisticated and added more guidelines and, and become more comprehensive, that uh, approach has become uh, more visible in, uh, in society and, and more uh, readily apparent. There's quite a bit that weatherization has to offer. It's been a steadily growing field for the last 30 years. Uh, Weatherization efforts that took place 20, 30 years ago really have nothing to do or very little to do with what we're doing today. Field is is renewing itself constantly and we're adding, we're making significant strides and adding technology and the impact that we're able to to have on these homes is significant. How can people reach you? (laughs) 
uh, the best way to get a hold of our program is to uh, visit our website and uh, send us an email. Um, that's a very uh, simple way to get a hold of us. Um, on the website, you will also be able to see the eligibility information because, again, we are the program is based on income eligibility, and that's an important part of the address is www.inscap.org and you will find the tab on that website that will lead you to weatherization and you can reach us that way. We're also available by phone, 812-339-3447 and um, you can give us a call and we can provide more information on how to apply for weatherization and uh, various benefits associated with the program once that application is completed. All right, well thank you very much for all that information. And also thank you for coming into the station today for the interview. You're welcome, John. My pleasure. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Please give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And up next is In Nature. This is In Nature. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. This segment of In Nature is about the endangered species, the eastern Massasauga rattlesnake. The eastern Massasauga rattlesnakes are small snakes with thick bodies, heart-shaped heads, and vertical pupils. The average length of an adult is two feet. They're gray or light brown with large, light-edged, chocolate-brown blotches on the back and smaller blotches on the sides. They have a rattle and are poisonous. They live in wet areas. Like all rattlesnakes, they bear live young. They eat small rodents, such as mice and voles. Originally, their habitat extended from central New York and southern Ontario to south-central Illinois and eastern Iowa. Within this large area, the numbers have steadily shrunk. Now, only small, isolated populations remain. The eastern Massasauga rattlesnake has been listed as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. People seem to have an innate fear of snakes, especially venomous snakes. They're often killed when they show up near homes, and people go out of their way to kill them. The draining of wetland for farms, roads, and homes has eliminated much of their habitat. Even though they're poisonous, they're actually a secretive docile snake that strikes humans only when it feels threatened. Education about the snake and the role of the eastern Mississauga rattlesnake in the ecosystem will help people feel more comfortable living with this rare creature. You've been listening to In Nature. Coming up this week in our listening area, 
There will be a guided hike with a naturalist through Lower Cascades Park on Saturday, February 23rd from 2 to 3 p.m. You will take a mildly challenging hike to the Cascades Waterfall, followed by a discussion about how winter weather shapes our landscapes as you warm up around a campfire at the Sycamore Shelter. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Participate in a hands-on workshop on how to make homemade maple syrup on Saturday, February 24th from noon to 1.30 p.m. at the RCA Community Park in Bloomington. The workshop will include free information, at tree identification equipment, collection and sugaring techniques, as well as the history of maple syrup. The class will be outside, so dress accordingly. Meet at the small shelter and register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Learn how to identify trees in winter with forester Josh Wagner on Sunday, February 24th from 1 to 3 p.m. The session will be at Scarlet Oak Woods, located at 6590 North Viking Ridge Road in Bloomington. RSVP is required at sycamorelandtrust.org slash hike hyphen RSVP. Learn the basics of hiking during a Hiking 101 class on Friday, March 1st. It will be at the Griffey Lake Nature Preserve from 5 to 7 p.m. Discussion will center on gear and clothing before learning how to navigate along a trail. Following instruction, you will take a short hike to practice and enjoy the scenery. Meet at the Boathouse. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. The Mysterious Hills Winter Hike Series continues on Saturday, March 2nd from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center at Brown County State Park where you will carpool to the Horse Trail Head A. From there, you will trek off-trail for approximately two miles towards one of the most beautiful places in the park. The hike is rugged, so be sure to dress for the weather, wear sturdy boots, and bring a hiking stick. And that wraps our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Rebecca Mueller, and Wes Martin. Get Out and Hike was produced and edited by Jan Walker. Script editors were Andrew Brown and Kaylin Huffman Brower. Today's feature featured was produced and edited by Rebecca Mueller. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. This week's In Nature was written by Juliana Daly and Jan Walker edited the segment. Kirsten Payton engineered today's show. Jan Walker is our producer. And executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, 
in nature and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Todd Wicks. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.